Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. This is the Coburn Ventures podcast. It's for our clients, for investors, for our community of industry leaders, fellows, and friends. This is a group that loves the craft of investing, studies change, is dedicated to business analysis and leadership, and all that's behind the scenes of that work. I hope you enjoy it. Social psychologist Matt Weller is here to help us understand the massive role identity plays in our decision-making. We cover so much in this conversation, not only the background behind identity and cognitive dissonance and why they're so important to be aware of in our decision-making, but also what we can do to become more fluid and exploratory in identity so that it doesn't remain a decision-making trap. Stay to the end. We have a helpful conversation on forging identities, layering them on top of one another effectively, how this happens well into adulthood in our whole lives, not just as children, and what we can do in teams, duos, or individually to strengthen these abilities. I hope you enjoy it. So Matt, welcome. Um, Pip, Matt, and I are here, and we're going to talk a little bit more about decision-making, which has been a focus of some of the most recent conversations. Matt, can you introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about um, your work and um, why you're here today? Sure. Uh, My name is Matt Waller. I'm a social psychologist by training, um, but I left academia fairly early um, and... uh, started doing more applied psychology work. So I spent the last 15 years of my career really looking at how do you use psychology to improve the things that we build? Um, and mainly around this thesis that everything that we build, everything we, we, you know, we sort of create in the world, services, products, et cetera, uh, exists to change behavior. And yet we almost never talk about them that way. And so by articulating the behaviors we want to change use with the service, then that leads us to designing services and products that are more likely to create those behaviors. So we talk about behavioral science, behavior as an outcome, science as a process. Um, and I'm, I'm of the radical belief that you don't need a PhD for that. I think anybody can do it. Um, and so I spend a lot of my time working with folks like Pip, trying to help um, people see that, you know, as long as they have an understanding of the scientific process and as long as they can articulate the behaviors they want to create, they too can go and do science towards behavior. Mm. And so Pip, we were really interested in this lens of, uh, Pip and I have both been reading your book right now, Matt, called Start at the End, How to Build Products that Create Change, which is so fun, I have to say. It's it's, um, not only illuminating, but I found it really entertaining to read and you'll have to, you'll have to see what I mean. Um, but there's this, there's a particular component that we want to talk about today, which is about identity. And Pip, why don't you describe a bit of what we were talking about, what draw you in, especially, and how we were thinking about identity as a, um, perhaps a, a limiter on effective decision-making? Yeah, I was thinking that, I don't know, for the past couple of years, I've had this thought that we so promote the the idea in our society about identity and what do you identify with, et cetera, et cetera. For me, I've been kind of going the opposite way of trying to shed some of the unhealthy power that identity can have in limiting, among other things, my range and scope of solution creation, my range and scope of decisions that might be made. 
um, where identity starts to become too much of who I am and I start to concretize around that. So I identify as a Democrat or Republican and that tells me how I'm gonna decide and it limits my choice or identify as that person that made us a ton of money on Amazon and like that becomes a big thing and too much of a thing so I can't see straight. So I look through the lens of identity um, in part, not the healthy part, which there's a, Matt can go through that, but the unhealthy part where it starts to become a prison and it starts to affect our judgment very, very deeply and really messes with our decision-making. On page seven of the book, Matt says, you know, identity is the most powerful pressure he knows. And I was like, oh, we gotta, we gotta talk to Matt because he agrees with my view. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I've created my own prison, but I was going to say, and then, you know, because you had this idea, now I am forced to agree. Uh, no, I mean, I think, you know, really what you're talking about, a lot of what's happening is the, uh, in psychology, we call the confirmation bias, right? So once I have uh, a, a, a worldview, right, once I have an interpretation of the world, my brain literally selectively attends to evidence that supports that worldview, right? So no matter what I believe, my brain will, you know, if I, if I believe the syllogism that like, you know, uh, uh, redheads have tempers. I'll forget all the redheads I know who are very leaving headed. And I'll just think of, you know, like I'll find the evidence in my memory of all of the redheads who have tempers in order to support that belief. And so if you think about identity as a set of beliefs or a, or a set of practices, right? The moment you have a stable identity, your brain starts to selectively reinforce that identity using various sort of, you know, cognition, you know, ch changes in cognition, et cetera. And I know you're very focused on the negative version of that. Let's briefly talk, and I, and I agree, there are very negative versions of that. Let's briefly talk about why your brain does that. Your brain is what we call a cognitive miser. So um, it, it is wired to uh, uh, spend your cognitive resources what it thinks of as wisely. And so one of the functions of identity is so that we don't have to continually remake decisions every single day, right? If I had to, you know, completely rethink my wardrobe every single morning, that is a huge waste of mental resources that could be devoted to other things that your brain wants to devote to you staying alive in an evolutionary perspective, right? And so, you know, the confirmation bias isn't, has developed because in many ways, it's actually quite good for you. If you had to, if you couldn't do this, if you had to like continually remake every decision in your life at every moment, that would be literally exhausting, right? Um, there's evidence that shows that when your brain makes decisions, it burns glucose, like it literally, literally would starve, like starve your body of glucose trying to make all these decisions. And so your brain sort of says, no, these things are stable. We're going to not remake this decision again over and over. Now, to your point, that's a double-edged sword, right? So if what you're trying to do is regain some plasticity, regain some flexibility, like get, get out of, you know, sort of patterns of behavior that you have, your brain is actively working against that. It doesn't want you to do that because it's going to spend a bunch of cognitive resources to do that. And so, you know, you're having, there's a little bit of a fight between your, you know, your sort of conscious and your unconscious cognitions because your unconscious is like, no, I don't want, I don't want to change. And, I, and it has developed a bunch of things to be supportive of not changing. And then your consciousness is saying, you know, pip in your case, like I, I want to, I want to go there. One of the things Matt and I talking yesterday, an additional feature, and this may be the same thing. Uh, so put it into your words, Matt. The world is this big, crazy, uncertain place. And for people to have 
some shortcuts that help them have a perspective of how they fit into the world can create some ground that's healthy for people. And you think about teens identifying as this, or th there can be a lot of super positives of just getting some orientation about how I fit into the world can be very, very healthy. Yeah, I mean, and, and to your point earlier about identity being a trap, right? Uh, that's, a, that's a, you know, it's like a hammer. You can look at hammer as a tool or you can look at hammer as a weapon and it's the same hammer, right? Like the same thing that can be a trap can also be powerfully grounding, right? Like your house is a trap, right? It prevents you from running freely in any direction. It also protects you from the wind and the rain and, and other sorts of things, right? Like almost anything can be seen from both perspectives and it's when it becomes healthy or unhealthy to your point uh, earlier that I think that that's where it starts to get interesting. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, the healthy version of the trap, my house has protective, right? Um, but it isn't, it's important to talk about it as a trap too, when it, it imprisons us and prevents us from changing decisions. You know, stocks are a great example, right? If I think of myself as a winner, because I made a particular kind of stock decision, it then can be hard to let go of that stock, right? Because like, I have, I have this with Microsoft. I worked at Microsoft. I got a lot of Microsoft stock for working at Microsoft. That's been tremendously like, you know, I started when it was 20, I, you know, I think it's now like something like 8X that, right? I mean, it, you know, it has this sort of st stratospheric sort of rise almost immediately as soon as I joined, right? Because I joined just as Balmer was leaving. It's very hard for me to get rid of my Microsoft stock. I'm very attached to it because I worked there and I have this thing to it. And so even if it went down, even if I should sort of get rid of it, I'm sort of irrationally attached to it because of identity related things. Not, you know, not sort of like, um, there are other irrational triggers why people hold on to things. Like I have an identity related trigger to this thing and it's gonna be really difficult for me to get rid of. And that, I mean, I can lose money, that can be a trap. What do you do to orient so that you're making decisions that you know then can maybe circumvent these biases or use them yeah i mean so i think there's there's two things that we can talk about i mean one of them a, a, a huge discovery that helped us understand the brain is is cognitive dissonance right so the idea that your your brain wants what you do and what you believe to line up and generally speaking, in incidents where what you do and what you believe don't line up, it will change your beliefs, right, in order to line up with your behaviors. And so the canonical example of this is, you know, Pip comes into my lab and I say, Pip, I need you to write an essay um, about either for or against tuition hikes. And he's a college student, so obviously he's against tuition hikes. But in one condition, I say, just, you know, write whatever you want. And the other one, I say, write whatever you want. But, you know, Pip, a lot of people have written about anti-tuition hikes. So if you could write something pro-tuition hike, that'd really help me out, right? He has to still perceive himself as having free choice, but, uh, you know, he, he feels social pressure to do this thing. So he will then write, obviously, an essay about, about pro-tuition hikes, and his beliefs actually then drift in that direction. They don't cross over the zero point. He doesn't suddenly believe in tuition hikes, but he is more open to the idea now because his brain essentially says, well, you just wrote a thing about it. You must you must kind of believe it, right? Because you just wrote a thing about it. Um, and so one of the things that we can do to disrupt our identity is change our behaviors, right? As long as we perceive that change having been made with free choice, our brain can help us understand, oh, I did something incongruent with my identity. Maybe my identity isn't the thing that I thought it was and it can nudge, nudge in the opposite direction. So that's one version. The other thing I think that, that is underutilized that we can do is people are complex. 
right? We're not one single identity. We're many identities, right? I'm a father. I'm a Democrat. I'm like, I'm, I'm a liberal. I'm all of these. I'm country boy, right? I grew up very rarely. I'm a first generation college kid. I have an infinite multitude of different, you know, characteristics that define my identity. And so obviously those are not all congruent, right? The beliefs that are expected of my country boyness are not congruent with my beliefs as a liberal, right? Like, you know, rural, rural men tend to be more conservative, right? And so I can fluidly code switch between my identities in order to prime some of the behaviors that I, that I tend to want to make, right? So, you know, to Pip's point, if I'm being held captive by my identity and it prevents me from making a particular kind of, of decision, what I can do is code switch to a different one of my identities that is more congruent with the decision that I need to make. Right. So let's go back to my Microsoft example. Right. I have this identity piece. I worked at Microsoft. I really actually, you know, of the large tech companies, I feel very strongly that Microsoft is probably the most uh, uh, sort of moral version of what a, of a big tech company can look like. Um, but if I needed to get rid of the Microsoft stock, I am also a very fiscally conservative person. I grew up first generation. Right. Like, so I'm, I'm a, I ran a had a product of the company that, you know, did budgeting, right? Like I am a fiscally conservative person. I tend to be relatively thrifty. And so I could appeal to that country boy, you know, I'm my, I'm my parents' kid thrifty sort of version of myself that says I'm the kind of person that makes financial decisions in a logical way, right? And that code switch of from my identity as loyal Microsoft person to country boy can actually can have me make the right decision because it then sort of primes me into the right sort of version of ourselves. And so I think that's often we perceive other people, right? We tend to perceive their decisions through whatever identity we associate with them. And so if we can, if we can understand their, their decisions as driven by a different identity, it can actually help us understand them better and, and then better engage with them. And, and, you know, to Pip's point earlier, then potentially better convince them, right? So I understand you are a Republican. I understand these are the Republican beliefs. You are also a mother. Let me trigger that, that mother identity, like, and you could understand why we might want laws that protect your children in particular kinds of ways or set your children free in particular kinds of ways. Your point about free choice being the necessary step between, you know, some experience of cognitive dissonance, free choice, and then the work on the antithesis. I think I hadn't thought of that, but how important <laughs> to really have someone own it, right? That's right. We know if you don't perceive it as free choice, the effect does not occur. You have to feel like you, like it was agentic on your behalf. Because think mm -hmm. about what your brain is doing, right? Your brain is looking for an explanation of what you did, right? And so your beliefs are one kind of explanation. In order for it to change your beliefs, the beliefs have to be the primary explanation. And if so, if you can just say, well, Matt made me do it, then it's, you know, the, the, your brain just says, well, you did it because Matt made you do it, not because your beliefs have changed or because, you know, your beliefs are incongruent with this thing or whatever, right? It's just, well, Matt made me do it. I, I wanted to raise a couple examples mm -hmm. to make sure that we don't get too abstract too quickly because I know the three of us could have this discussion for about 17 hours. So I was going to give... Um, a couple, uh, one for instance, that's been on my mind for a couple of years. Let's suppose um, you're, you're at the 18th hole, the last hole of the Masters, and you're up by one stroke. Matt and I were talking about this yesterday. You're up by one stroke, 
All you need is a par and you're a professional and a par on that hole isn't particularly difficult. It's a, not a particularly long hole, a wedge, two putt, you win the tournament. But in the back of your brain, you're thinking, this is gonna be my first master's win and I wanna punctuate this one. And I wanna like really like end this big and I'm tired of everyone talking about how great Tiger Woods is and I want them to talk about how amazing Pip Coburn is. And so, and I'm known as the biggest driver, the new biggest driver on the tour. So instead of hitting a drive out there like 250, 260, I'm gonna crank this sucker. And people are gonna remember it like iconically. And instead I, so I do that, I'm trapped by my identity. If I, everyone's always told me I'm like the biggest driver and I must the stats and that's And so I rip that off, but I, I pull it way into the woods and I double bogey and I lose. That's where my lack of awareness of what was going on with me, I couldn't slow the picture down to then make a decision because I was so trapped by that thing and an unaware of that. A different one that happened to me when I was really early in the investment world is I had a lot of success investing in casino companies. And uh, I was known for that in our, in our company. And there's this one company, Players International, where the stock had just gone through the roof. And I was starting to feel like wait, I'm seeing a couple things that kind of a little, uh, but I was known as that guy. So I was like, oh, you know, but I didn't realize how trapped I was. My boss comes up to me one day and does, and the stock's turning over. It's going down a little bit. So Ed goes, guess what one stock they really pointed out? And I'm like, I don't know. Players International, they love it. It's going through a double, triple, holder, shoulder thing. And, and I'm sitting there going, I still remember the feeling like, uh, oh yeah, like, oh, I must be right. And then part of me was like, Ed, like, I think we need to get out of this. And sure enough, the stock just crashed on me. And you know, on the other side, no one said, oh, Pip, you made us so much money. They were like, now I became the guy that didn't get us out of players and was just such a loser for these stupid casino stocks, which are clearly a fad. Asymmetric identity risk is a very real thing, right? If you are the smart kid in class, every time you raise your hand, you have high risk, right? Because if you get the answer right, all you've done is confirm your identity. And if you get the answer wrong, now everybody's gonna point and laugh, right? Whereas, you know, if you, if you are known as the not smart kid, every time you raise your hand, you actually have asymmetric ability to gain right because if you raise your hand and give the right answer people are going to be like holy shit he's smarter than i thought he was right and and if you give the wrong answer then it's just a you know it's just a confirmation of what everybody already knew about you um this also has pernicious effects though right um we talk about one of the things we talk about in psychology stereotype threat so stereotype threat is when i know the the stereotype that is associated with my with my identity whatever it may be I then act in, like, I'm petrified, like, I have to, let's say, um, you know, men in the workplace are, are uh, uh, aggressive, right? And I know that identity. I can spend so much, I get trapped in spending so much time worrying about how my decisions may actually reinforce that, that stereotype that it then causes me to underperform because I'm spending all of this time being worried about, like, not confirming this stereotype about my about my particular identity which is so hard right because 
again, like we're, we're actually a constellation of many kinds of identities, right? And so being softer in the workplace may actually be totally congruent with one of my other identities. I just, I'm not thinking in that moment that that's how people are going to view me. And that's where I think that multiplicity comes in, right? If you would think about the Players International and like how, how that might have played out differently, you could have said to Ed, hey, get, I want to get out of this, right? You know, by, by priming one of your other identities, I don't know you well enough from that time, what other identities we could have used, but maybe like, you know, Pip's a risk taker or Pip's a contrarian. Like if you had primed your contrarian uh. identity, you, you know, you, I'm the kind of person who speaks my mind. I'm the kind of person who identity trigger, like that could actually have been made, made it easier for you in that moment to do that behavior. And so thinking ourselves as multiplicitous, as a constellation of behaviors, and then fluidly switching between those behaviors is really important. And, and, you know, society has an effect on whether we're able to do that. Right. Um, Man, I was going to, I was going to add in two more things. Um, go. Okay. One is picking some of our identities. Mm -hmm. So for example, I think somewhere you mentioned that, that classroom setting, Bryn, that was why when I grew up, I was a terrible student. I was a, a very hard to coach because I would protect an identity of I'm, uh, oh, I'm smart. But there are kids that were smarter, than me, <laughs> a lot smarter than me. Or, oh, I'm a really good athlete. So I wouldn't want to get the coaching that would reveal I'm not that good things like that. I think one thing that's helped me over the last 15 years is really take on this identity, I guess identity, of I'm a student. Because I'm a student gives me latitude to change my mind at any point about almost anything. Whereas like that expert, you kind of get into that little bit of trap. The other thing that Matt goes through my mind is our society maybe has given wider definition or expanse to some of the critical identities. So if I was a man in the early 90s, there'd be a certain expectation of what a man is. Now the expectation of man is, well, it's, it's varied. There's some still, and there's things that a man is not. A man doesn't use physical force against other people. That is not a man. But a man might have sensitivity. A man might slow down. A man like, you know, a man could wear pink, you know, things like that. And that's, hopefully that's also helped for other groups that I, that doesn't, I'm not, well, I'm supposed to behave this way in this situation. Otherwise, I'm not a man, for instance, or a real investor does this or. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there, there, this is actually where I was going uh, uh, was, the, was this notion that society allows for more flexibility in some kinds of, of um, identities than others, right? Um, there's a big difference between visible, being a visible minority and an invisible minority, right? Like I'm a first generation college student which is at the levels that you and I and Bryn tend to play, actually, I'm very much in the minority, right? Um, as you and I talked, discussed recently, right? I'm up for this big job where I'm like, like no one near me has been up for this kind of job before. So I'm like, I have this invisible disadvantage where I have no idea what's happening because I've just never gone through this process, nor has anyone I know, right? And so I reach out to you and I'm like, introduce me to some people because, of, but that's invisible, right? I don't walk around on the street and people are like, there he is, that first generation college kid, right? Whereas, you know, you, you look at Kamala Harris or, you know, there was, a, there was a brilliant essay recently by, you know, a woman who's basically, 
I think one sixteenth African American or something, right? But because that is visibly imprinted on her skin, right? We have this tendency because of the way we construct identity in America. Someone who is one sixteenth African American, we can be like that person is African American, and like we're gonna hold them to the African American stereotype, right? And so people's ability to break in and out of stereotypes is not solely conformed by themselves, but rather like sort of socially constructed by other people, right? And there's a degree to which that's mutable or unmutable, visible or invisible, right? And so, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a, just because we can trigger our own identities, you know, society also has, it forces some identities upon us. And so there's this dyadic relationship between our ability to do that and not. Um, and, and I think that's where things like stereotype threat come in, right? Like stereotype threat is, is not necessarily my own conception of my identity. It's the fear of confirming someone else's conception of my identity, which closes off, you know, I, I'm worried that as a, as a man, if I act aggressive, they'll associate that with my male identity rather than genuine anger or other kinds of things. I mean, we've all had that experience, right? Where our emotional experiences or other kinds of experiences are dismissed because of one of our identities. That's boys being boys, as opposed to I have an actual anger issue that I need help with, right? And so I, I think there, you know, identity, there are much better psychologists than me uh, on, on the identity front and many books have been written and, and much has been said, you know, from a behavior change perspective, to me, a lot of this goes back to the triggering of multiple identities, right? Creating that space for people to self-define, creating that space and then when we want to change their identity, when we want to change their behavior, triggering the identities that, that are going to help people do that, right? You know, I'm the kind of person who. If you wanted to, let's say, I mean, if I wanted to become more um, fluid or, or able to call upon different identities, like let's say you and I were working on a project, Matt, and so you kind of had to train me in this type of flexibility, what would, what would we do? <laughs> How would I start to get better at that so that I could slow things down, call upon them and be, you know, have more awareness of how I'm making decisions? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting, I mean, how do you get better is an interesting one. And I think putting yourself in situations that remind you that have multiple identities, I think is really key, right? It is easy for me as a first generation country boy from, from rural Oregon to no longer go back to Oregon or associate with those people in a way that then causes me to forget that that's part of who I am, forget that that's an option for how I, how I view my own behaviors. Right. Um, and so re-engaging with your identities at various points, right. And, and, and spending some real time, like exploring where and how, you know, your beliefs were, were shaped and formed and, and what those parts of your identity are, I think can be really, really key. Right. This is why, you know, when you look at mental flexibility, when you look at decision making flexibility, diversity of experience is a strong predictor. Right. Why is diversity of experience a strong predictor? Well, because diversity of experiences causes us to collide and understand all of the many, you know, identities we might have. So when I was 15 years old, I left rural Oregon. I went to Hong Kong. I got, you know, I got this amazing scholarship to go to school with kids from 80 countries. So I left behind my family and I went to school with kids from 80 countries and being exposed to kids from 80 countries starts to define the borders of the state that is Matt, right? Because now like, you know, there's not, if you're in rural Oregon, there's not as much fodder to compare and contrast with. But now when you're, when you're in this soup of 80 different things that you can compare and contrast with, you can start to define the borders of where you are and aren't, 
right? And so it's that exposure to diversity that can actually help us be more diverse in our thinking because it helps us to, to understand, well, this is the place where we have overlap and this is the place where, you know, we, we step away. Siblings are a great one, right? Like Pip happens to, uh, uh, Pip, it's okay if I, I reference your family, Pip happens to have uh, uh, triplets, right? And, and so you look at kids who are very close in age. My brother is only 18 months apart from me. And so if you watch us go through this identity formation stage in the teenage years, you know, early on, there's these places where we're looking for similarity, but you get to a point where you're like really looking for, diff for difference. I had this, I remember my brother and I both had long hair, which was somewhat uncommon in, in this rural town that we grew up in. And both of us had a habit of running our hand through his hair, through, through our hair. And I remember my brother's friends, who are people who are two years older than me, sort of making fun of me for doing the same thing that my brother did. And I remember consciously trying to expose, like, you know, not do that behavior anymore because it was part of his behavior, right? And, and that, that identity, you know, trying to figure out the difference between yourself and other people can help, can, can partially define your identity. So diversity of experience, Brian, I think can be really important to, to helping us be more fluid in these things. The root for fan is fanatic. And it's good to be a fanatic now and again. When you're making decisions on stocks, you do not want to be a fan. Yeah. Um, I remember 1998 when I caught myself being a fan. I threw out all of the stuff that was given to me from companies. And one day when I went home from work, pencils, pens, shirts, I just got rid of all of it. I didn't want it to affect me. But here's like the situation where, you know, I'm a Tom Petty fan. Now, when I get to the point of justifying why that is right, it's one thing to be an Ohio State fan and go, I just love being an Ohio State fan and let me talk to you about the history and like 14. When I then tell, say, and I'm right because of it, there's a different level of concretizing that I think can really mess with us. I'm a high growth investor. Let me tell you why that's right. I'm a value guy. And the value guys have really been hurting the last 15 years. I'm a value guy and it's just right. People are paying stupid multiples for Salesforce and blah, blah, blah. And they miss that they've been doing that for 25 years with different stocks because they get concretized that their stable likes are no longer just wonderful fanboy things that bring life to the world, but they become concretized that they're right and the other people are wrong. Can you talk about that in the context of or could you run with that, Matt, in any way? Yeah. <laughs> you know, how, are you hear, how are you hearing this? Well, so there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a thing that's said in tech often um, as a characteristic of a good leader and a characteristic of a, of a, a, good, a good person is strong opinions weakly held, right? So strong opinions weakly held. The notion that, like, I can have depth of conviction about something, right? I can be an Ohio State fan, but I'm willing to easily change my mind in when when disconformatory evidence is presented to me right so strong opinions weakly held um that's a hard thing to cultivate right um you know it, it is uh, in part because as we talked earlier right like i have all of these systems in my mind that are made to perpetuate my beliefs so that i don't have to continually remake these behaviors and that's why i love this sort of like well can i trigger other parts of your identity because it, um, if, that, if I can then get you to remember, we'll go back to this like full circle. We go back to cognitive dissonance, right? If I can get you to behave in ways that are not congruent with whatever that identity is, right? Then I can get that identity to change. My favorite example of this is like C.P. Ellis, 
So do you know this story? This is, a, this is one of my favorite historical stories. So C.P. Ellis is the head of the Ku Klux Klan in his, in his, in Durham, North Carolina. Um, and, you know, he's, he's really into it. He like starts a youth group to teach kids basically KKK ideals, right? Like, you know, he's, he's, he's in it. And the school is going to get desegregated. And the woman who is asked to chair the desegregation, you know, sort of committee says, hey, CP, why don't you co-chair this with me? You care about kids. Why don't you co-chair this with me? And, in, and this woman, by the way, is black. And so in the process of doing that, you know, triggering that identity, hey, CP, you're someone who cares about kids. You're smart. You're vocal, right? Like, you know, you care about kids he actually begins to realize that he is, that, that all of his KKK beliefs are actually about poverty. And he's disillusioned with the American dream because he grew up incredibly poor. And so, and that's actually something he and this black woman and other people have in common. And so he then, um, not only after doing the desegregation thing, he then becomes a labor organizer and becomes very strident about sort of like organizing labor rights for both blacks and whites at the bottom of the economic period. So pyramid. So he moves from this identity as like, you know, sort of racist to sort of classist and is able to do that because this other person has this wonderfully empathetic moment and is able to trigger his identity as intelligent and worthwhile and caring about kids and, you know, trigger all these other identities in him that then create the space where, wow. you know, if you're sitting on the, on the desegregation committee, it's tough to maintain your identity as a Ku Klux Klan member, right? Because you're sitting on the desegregation committee. And so, you know, if, if other people can trigger those identities. Now, look, I don't love everything about this story, right? Because I don't, it, it asks the disadvantaged group, right? It asks this black woman who's disadvantaged both because of gender and race and ethnicity and other kinds of things, right? Like she had to do the work of inviting them onto the thing. And I think that, the, you know, there's this dangerous syllogism of, the oppressed having to do the emotional work and, and the sort of political work to do these things. But I is, I mean, you can see how powerful this strategy is where you get into this moment where, you know, you can sort of disrupt people's version of what they think is right by supplementing another kind of right. So rather than trying to say, Pip, you're wrong about X, saying, Pip, you're right about Y, but Y is strategically chosen to show you that you're wrong about X. So if at some point, not to make it out a much less um, important, although serious, we take our, our work serious, if Ed had come in recognizing the paradigm of Pip is going to be known as the casino guy, he's going to be hard to get up. He might have come in and go, well, the players, but actually, you know, you're really good at these high growth, high volatile things, situations. What are the patterns of thinking about what the next spaces might be? Um, I actually sort of came to see that that was a pattern of my exposure to very volatile, publicly traded spaces. So I got less attached that I, I, I need this to be a winner or I need that to be a winner. My universe got very wide. I can find winners anywhere because there's a big space around high growth, highly volatile things. When it was just like the mini, mini casino, what happens when casinos are done, then that would feel really, really awful. Yeah, rephrasing what you just said, one of the ways, one of the best ways to change people's behavior is rather than trying to convince them, right, of a particular thing, right? Like you think A is right, I'm gonna try and convince you A is wrong. If I can 
help you see the world as diverse, right? Create the openness and possibility for change, right? That's what triggering another identity does. It creates the possibility for change and sort of helping you get there on your own. Uh, we are very good at this, speaking of identities, we're very good at doing this for kids, right? Like, you know, I, I know that's something the three of us have in common, you know, is, is work with kids. We're very good at creating opportunity space for kids to self-realize that they are ready for change, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's a hallmark of sort of, you know, modern liberal progressive education and is, you know, research shows this is very effective. We don't do it very well with adults, right? Because adults are like part of our expectation of the identity of an adult is that I should be able to change your mind through rationality, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than through exploration. And if we instead try and approach adults with the same triggered notion of exploration, right? We actually are much more successful at changing their behavior because we understand, because that, that what we think of as childlike, everybody's going through that, right? So if you look in psychology at, at identity formation theories, basically what people suggest is, you know, there are very concrete identity formation stages when you're young. And then what happens, the sort of final stage is this flipping back and forth between what we call resolved and unresolved. So at any given moment in my life, I'm sort of resolved around this identity and then something comes up that's incongruent that caused me to be unresolved and then I do the work to be re-resolved, right? And so you see this all the time, you know, Pip and I talked yesterday about, you see this all the time when people have major life changes. I conceptualize myself as a good husband and good father and then my wife tells me that she wants to divorce me, right? And so that upsets that identity and I now have to recraft my identity through that disruption, right? And so in some ways, Pip, like, you know, there's sort of two strategies that Ed could have used. One is to trigger a different stable identity, right, for you. Another is simply to create the disruption of your existing identity, right? To say, Pip, here, let me give you, you know, you think of yourself as, as a fan of, of these, you know, J-curve kind of, you know, high volatility things. Let me remind you of a time when you didn't do that right? Like, let me disrupt that notion by giving you evidence of a time that, you know, you just didn't, you didn't get, like, here's a J-curve thing that you would never tell me to get into. So you're obviously not as J-curvy as you think you are, because you would never tell me to get into this crazy high volatility thing, right? And so let's new, like, I'll disrupt this notion of you as the J-curve guy by providing evidence that you're not the J-curve guy, that then allows you to, on your own, figure out, well, if I'm not the J-curve guy, it's actually more about volatility. What I really am is the volatility guy. I mistakenly saw that as the J-curve guy. I'm really the volatility guy. So disrupting, like either triggering another stable identity or disrupting your existing identity can be really powerful ways to create the space for change. You were talking about creating opportunities for, for space and shaping. Yeah, I mean, so, so, you know, we just had this conversation about disrupting identity as a potential way to, to change our behavior. And what I was pointing out was, you know, this is how forging works, right? So when you want to make a sharp blade, what you're really doing is heating it up, banging it out, heating it up, banging it out, heating it up, banging it out. And, you know, the strength of the blade is defined by that heating up and banging it out thing, right? That's, that is what adulting is, right? It's the heating up and, you know, sort of redefining our identity continually. That's not a weakness, right? That's an opportunity to create strength by realigning layers of our identity so that they fit together in a way that creates durability and flexibility, right? A good blade, you know, forging is actually a, a really interesting meta metaphor, right? Because 
a bad, a brittle sword is a bad sword. You can get a lot of, of a certain kind of edge strength, right? I can sharpen it really well, but if I hit something, it'll break immediately, right? You need flexibility. This is, this is very counterintuitive people. Often people, when they pick up a sword and you sort of do the, be, the, the blade flex, they're like, it's so weird that the blade flexes, right? Like, shouldn't that be non-strong? But that like blade flexibility is actually very strong. It's that ability to sort of like, you know, have just enough bend, but just enough rigidity. And that's the sort of trick of identity is how do you have enough stability that you have rigidity that promotes strength? But then how are you able to sort of move through those identities in a way that creates flexibility so that you're not stuck in that, in that sort of brittleness. And then when you run up against something you've never seen before, you know, you hit it and your brain, you know, your brain explodes and your blade explodes because your identities aren't, aren't sort of flexible enough to sort of flex with each other. So on our teams, we could actually create some spaces to, to do that, to do some forging, take things from different angles, try on different points of view. For investors, that's in some ways very clear cut because it's if you're long something, you take a turn at the short side or... That 100%, right? And so there's a million ways to do that, right? Like take your, you know, the young woman you've got in charge of your short, you know, your short strategy and the, the old guy you've got in charge of your long strategy and make them flip. Mm -hmm. Right. And like make them spend some time in each other's shoes and they'll, they'll find some interesting sort of pieces out of occupying other identity spaces for a period of time. This is why, you know, finance has underinvested in diversity, like, you know, sort of cultural diversity, ethnic diversity, racial diversity, gender diversity, other kinds of, you know, fluidity, I think massively underinvested in that. Mm -hmm. And that has created, you know, these sort of like very, very rigid, like, that's the old white guy that I go to for my long-term strategy, right. which then, you know, as we know, is very sort of, you know, that's very fragile, could right? A brittle blade, ma'am. That could be a brittle blade. And, and I think exposing, underexposure to uh, 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 a diversity of experiences. And so as, a, you know, if, you, if I was running an investment company, like one of my highest priorities would be creating diverse experiences, not just hiring diverse people, but creating diverse experiences, mm -hmm. causing my people to get out of the bubble of where they're in and continually challenging them to disrupt, right? I often think about, about finance offsites, right? Where you take these people who are relatively economically well compensated, right? They're at the top of the socioeconomic pyramid. And then you take them somewhere where they're also at the, you know, like this all-inclusive resort in Hawaii where everything's super expensive, right? Mm -hmm. Like do your like offsite in Duluth, right? Or somewhere where they're <laughs> like, you know, getting some exposure to something that is not just the same, yeah. you know, the same thing. Because like, again, if we go back to our blade forging, right? Like you need that at different temperatures, mm -hmm. right? You need to introduce like diversity of, of, of sort of uh, uh, experience and, and then bang that out again, right? You gotta, you gotta bend it and bang it flat, bend it and bang it flat, bend it and bang it flat. And I think that like, there's not enough, there's not enough heat created, right? In, in many industries. And then there's not enough, you know, resolution of that, of that disruption, right? Disrupt and resolve. Some industries have the opposite problem, right? It's too much disruption. Exactly. There's never any resolution. I was going to say, I think some people even hear this and the word disrupt and they say, oh, we don't want any of that. But it's that's right. It's this the pattern, the cycle of disrupt, resolve, and in fact, right. being active on that it sounds like it makes the that's what where the strength comes from. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think if you look at teams like, um, you know, couples that never fight are not particularly durable couples, right? Because then when they do encounter something that causes them to fight. 
they don't know how to resolve that. If you look at resiliency in couples, the greatest predictor is mutual respect, the ability to experience conflict and then resolve through that conflict, right? Experience conflict, resolve through that time. That's what makes us closer, like even in friendship, right? A friendship untested is not a very good friendship, mm-hmm. right? Like we have to be able to push each other. We have to have these moments where we're closer or farther apart. And that's actually what makes us durable and strong, right? And so if everybody's just monolithically repeating the same thing and monolithically like sort of off in this direction, you know, that's, that is the definition of fragility to me. And I think it happens in business um, and in particularly investment all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Pip talked earlier, right? About people get trapped in their reputation, mm-hmm. right? As, the, as a particular kind of investor, mm-hmm. right? And, or a particular kind of investor, we're a quant shop, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like, when was the last time a quant shop looked at anything qual? right? Looked at anything discretionary, right? They're just so deep in this pyramid of like quant, 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 quant. Um, you know, there's the syllogism we often use about T-shaped people in business, right? Like deep, horiz- deep, deep vertical expertise, but broad horizontal in- uh, interest. And what happens often as people go along in their careers, they become increasingly I-shaped, right? They like just continue this deep expertise because it's what they're known for. Mm-hmm. And they don't, allow themselves any flexibility on the horizontal space. They don't put themselves in the position of, of something else, right? And so being really conscious about building both horizontal and vertical experiences mm-hmm. so that, hey, maintain your deep focus. Like it's great to get better at quant, but like if you're not reading anything you know, discretionary, if you're not engaging in anything discretionary, you know, that's, this is, this is eyes topple over. <laughs> Yeah, right. right. These are, are very stable, right? Because they have these long sort of, you, you know, counterbalancing forces on the top, right? So when an earthquake comes, like the T stays upright because it's got this long counterbalancing you know, thing at the top. I just fall right over. In his book, Matt writes, everything in the world we create exists to change behavior, but we never talk about it that way. So how wonderful if we can slow things down around important decisions to see where we might be falling prey to a trap and instead build a muscle of flexible thinking into our process. Thank you for listening.